Hello, welcome to your courageous journey. This is Julie Ferber. And this is Julie Sickles, and we are so glad to have you guys with us today. We are so excited to share this next episode with you, but real quick before we jump into that, just wanted to give you a quick recap of what we're doing here on Your Courageous Journey. On this podcast, we are interviewing people for them to be able to share pieces of their stories with us. And then the following week, we take just a little piece of that discussion and talk about either a psychological or mental health or personal improvement topic that Julie and I then discuss together and just help to share some wisdom and get some goodness out there into the world. So today we are going to share with you an interview that we had with Michelle Reidinger. She is really, really cool. I thoroughly loved talking to her. Um, She actually has a blog where she talks a lot about her experiences with bipolar disorder and it's awesome. If you guys have an opportunity, you should definitely check it out. Yeah, she offers a lot of really great tips on how to manage and create a healthy and balanced lifestyle that I think really could be beneficial to anyone, not just people who maybe struggle with a mental health issue. Yeah. And you've known her for a long time too, right? I have. I have. I met Michelle probably somewhere around 2010, maybe a little bit before or after that. We both went to church in Georgia back when my family lived in Georgia. And in 2015, my family moved to Utah. And I ran into Michelle just a couple of years ago at our elementary school. We both have kids at the same elementary school. So (laughs) random small world. We both now live in the same town and our kids go to the same elementary school. Um, And so I got a chance to talk to her and find out some of what she's been up to and what she's doing. And she told me about her blog. And I love the wisdom that she has from the experiences that she's had in her life that have been really tough and would love to be able to share that with our listeners. So let's go ahead and jump into our interview now. Michelle, we're super excited to have you on here. Let me introduce the other Julie. This is Julie (laughs) Farber. And um, we've been best friends since we were 10. We met in Michigan when we were growing up. So we've known each other a very, very long time. Yeah. The funny thing is, though, is we have only lived in the same place, what, maybe like four years out of four years out of our lives. Each other. Uh, yeah. So, and that's a total. When we were in Michigan, I think I was only there for two and a half years. Yeah. Yeah. So. And then we lived in Utah in our college days. It overlapped for a couple years. Uh, yeah, about two year years. Two. And other than that, we've just stayed in touch and visited with yeah. each other. And yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. So now we get to spend lots of time together doing the screen thing and yeah. putting this podcast together. So that's amazing. Yeah. yeah. We would love if you could start off today just by telling us a little bit more about you. Certainly. I was diagnosed with bipolar in 1998, one month before graduating from college. Mm -hmm. Uh, I had had pretty serious symptoms of it for about two years at that point, but didn't know that I had bipolar. I thought it was moral deficiency. I was buying lots of like self-help books, you know, trying to fix myself. And I, every once in a while I would have this thought, like, I wonder if there's something wrong with me. But every time I would have that thought, I would feel like I was making excuses for myself. And I would kind of chide myself for trying to make excuses and uh, go back to, you know, trying to fix myself. But it got really severe my senior year in college, the symptoms that I had mania, I would get, like, feel like I was receiving tons of inspiration. And I would 
make major life altering decisions, you know, thankfully they, they all had to do with my college. And so it never took me out of college, but it was like changing my major. Mm-hmm. I was at one point I was going to be a math teacher and then I was going to be a Russian. I was going to be Russian major. I had no experience with Russian at all. And I was going to be in the foreign service and I ended up settling on Chinese. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, to, I mean, these were things that had never been on my radar before. And mm-hmm. when I would get manic, I would, you know, get these ideas and I would talk really fast and I would tell everybody all my plans. And then I would crash and get severely depressed and kind of hide from everybody binge watching shows and and that. And then I would ramp back up and get, you know, manic again. And it went on for a little while. And the people, my aunt and uncle, I lived in in the Salt Lake area. Um, in college, and my aunt and uncle lived near there, and I lived with them a few times off and on during college, um, and also worked for my uncle, and they're the ones who started recognizing the patterns. They're the ones who started seeing the patterns, uh, especially when I was working for my uncle. Um, when I was depressed, I would make lists for myself of things that I was supposed to do, really simple tasks that I was supposed to do because I was having a really hard time focusing. And then when I would get manic, I would want to take on big projects and I get all these ideas. And so my parents were really worried about me, and they called my aunt and uncle and my aunt and uncle said they thought that I had a mental illness. And so when they talked to me about it, I remember breaking down crying um, because I, I knew that what they were saying was probably true, but I was afraid. Mm, yeah. And so my aunt went with me actually to my initial appointment. And I was so severely depressed when we went that I had a hard time formulating thoughts or talking. And so she did a lot of the talking during my initial appointment. And she was sharing what she had observed from the outside. And so it was helpful, but it wasn't totally accurate picture. So I was initially misdiagnosed with um, depression and anxiety disorders. Mm. And when they put me on an antidepressant, I got manic. And so then they changed my diagnosis to bipolar disorder. And I actively sought treatment. You know, I, I was told by the doctor that if I, all we needed to do was find the right combination of medications and I'd be okay. And I believed him. And so I actively sought treatment. I, you know, I would go to the doctor's appointments diligently. I would take every medication that I was prescribed and I didn't tolerate the medication very well. I had terrible side effects from almost every medication I took. Mm-hmm. They were never able to get me on therapeutic dosages of almost anything. So they layered medications with me and I just got progressively worse over the next wow. decade. I just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And in 10 years after my initial diagnosis was when I had a breakdown. And I ended up hospitalized three times in two different mm-hmm. states. The first one was the longest one. I was in a locked ward for a week. And then they released me and decided to do electric convulsive therapy. And I, and I had a psychotic episode. And so they put me back in the hospital for another four weeks. Wow. And the electric convulsive therapy was rough because I lost a lot of my memory. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did some terrible things during that time. And I don't have memory of them. You know, I have weird kind of, I call them shadow memories and really weird kind of shadow memories of it that almost feel like a dream. Mm-hmm. And when they released me from the hospital, well, when they were talking about releasing me from the hospital, the doctor was insisting on putting me on a medication that I had a really bad reaction to before. And she just absolutely insisted that that was the medication I needed. Mm-hmm. And I was terrified that I wanted to go home and she wouldn't release me if I didn't agree to take it. So I agreed and became suicidal and made an attempt, my first attempt. And the second attempt put me back in the hospital. <laughs> and then I had gotten to a point where I just didn't feel like there was any help. I kind of started feeling like my doctors were lying to me. I didn't feel like it was ever going to get any better. And the suicidal ideation had started a while before. It started with, I would have nightmares about dying and wake up in the morning feeling really bad inside. And I never told anybody. I felt so bad about 
those thoughts. And then it turned into daydreams. I would have like be driving down the road and have thoughts about, you know, what if you just drove off the road here, you know, or, you know, things like that would come into my mind. And when I first had those thoughts, I was horrified by them. And it made me a little afraid to drive. It made me afraid to do things that would be dangerous, you know. But then I started finding relief in the thoughts. It started mm-hmm. to feel like a relief, like, oh, that would be like, a relief because then I would just yeah. die and then it would be over, you know. Mm-hmm. And I had lots of thoughts like I would think all the time my husband would be so much better off if he had a different wife. You know, I'm ruining my children's lives. They'd be better off if my husband could find a new mom for them. And because I didn't tell anybody, I was afraid to tell anybody about it because I felt a lot of shame for having those thoughts. And I felt ashamed that I liked the thoughts, you know, that they felt relieving to me. So I didn't tell anybody. And I think that that combined with the hospitalizations and the breakdown and everything just was like the perfect storm. And then when they put me on that medication that I had such a bad reaction to, it was just like too much. And the turning point for me though, was one day after my third hospitalization, I was at home watching my children play. My daughter was four at the time and my son was two. And I had a really clear thought come into my head. If you ever succeed in ending your life, it will ruin her life, not their life, her life. I knew that she would blame herself and it would ruin her life. And I remember being shocked by the thought, but also knowing it was true. And as soon as I realized that that was true, I thought I can never allow myself to do that again because I don't want to hurt her. Mm -hmm. And so from that point on, I was determined that I would survive. If I could expect nothing out of life except survival, that I would do that for my daughter because she mattered more to me than my own life. And so that was a turning point for me because it changed the way that I viewed myself and I viewed my disorder. And I was determined after that to just at least find a way to survive. And so for about two years after that, I was just surviving. Like my life was just about trying to survive from day to day. And then in 2010, my doctor and I found a micronutrient treatment that he agreed to help me transition to. And that was when my brain started to heal. You know, it took about three months. It takes a while to titrate off of psychiatric meds, especially if you've been on them for a long time and and the withdrawals were pretty awful. Mm -hmm. Um, But I remember one day after about three months in waking up one day, feeling like it was the first time I was fully awake in over a decade. Mm-hmm. And, and it was from that point on just little by little, my brain started to heal. And then it was possible, like therapy actually worked for me after that. I tried therapy before, but because my brain was so unhealthy, I couldn't apply what I was learning in therapy. And I didn't really understand how to use therapy, but I was finally able to like use therapy in a really productive way. And gradually one by one, I found tools that would help me, you know, mindfulness meditation. And I started to understand how to use exercise in a, in a healthy way. And So little by little, I've started finding things that would help me to heal and figuring out how to balance all of those things. And so about 2021, 2020 is when I started my blog because I started thinking like, oh, you can live well with this. Like you don't have to suffer. You don't need to spend your life just suffering. You can live well with this. And why wasn't I taught this at the beginning? (laughs) Like (laughs) somebody give me a treatment plan at the beginning that says, these are the things you're going to do. It'll take some time to learn them, but these are the things you need to do. And so that was what I started my blog for in the first place was I thought I want to teach other people what I've learned so they don't have to figure it out for themselves. And then over the last couple of years, I started to recognize I'm, I'm not cycling anymore. Like I don't experience mood cycles anymore. And I know how to manage my disorder really well. And I feel like my brain has healed, you know, and even when I have stressful experiences, I know what to do, how to manage it so that it doesn't do me in emotionally or mentally. So that's amazing. That was a long introduction. <laughs> oh, that's incredible. I, I know. Such a good story. <laughs> I have a quick question. So that medication that you were on that was terrible for you. Were you on that for two years? No. 
No, I have. Stop taking it. I had a psychotic episode on it the first time I had it, and I didn't know. I didn't know what psychosis was at that time because I hadn't had. Mm -hmm. I my psychosis, my psychotic experiences were small. Like, I don't know how. It's really hard to describe for somebody who's never experienced it before. But for me, it felt like I would get tunnel vision. And I would feel like I was having kind of out of my body, like I was above the room looking down at my body. Those mm-hmm. were the, the experiences that I had with psychosis. And so I didn't recognize until years later that what had happened on the medication, I felt like I could feel the neurons in my brain disconnecting from each other. It was a really disturbing experience. I started it when I was, I graduated from college and I moved home with my parents and it was after they had changed my diagnosis. And so they put me on this medication Mm-hmm. And I was taking the bus into work. Uh, I worked in the city and I was taking the bus in. And as I was sitting there, I started to feel like I could feel the individual neurons in my brain disconnecting from each other. And the longer it went on, the worse it felt. And by the time I got to work, I was terrified. Like I was mm-hmm. afraid of what was happening to me. I thought I was dying. You know, it was a really scary experience for me. And I called yeah. my mom crying from work and I said, I think I'm going crazy. And I was trying to describe to her what was happening. And she, you know, called and discovered that I was having a reaction to the medication. And mm-hmm. so I left work early and went home and had to kind of wait it out for the stuff to get out of my system. And so I was terrified of taking it again. Mm-hmm. But the doctor was, was the, convinced. How that it long was, had you been taking it when you had that reaction? Just a couple of days. Okay. So wow. it was, I had a pretty it was very reaction. fast. Yeah, it was a really okay. fast reaction to it. So it was, and the problem that I had with the doctor, and this is one of the things that I teach people is you've got to learn how to stand up for yourself. It's really mm-hmm. hard for us yeah. to do that because we feel like the doctor's the expert. We don't, you know, we don't trust our minds when you have a mental illness, you don't trust your own mind anyway. And so yeah. it's very easy to be convinced that you don't know what's best for you. But I was crying. I have a very clear memory. It's weird because I have spotty memory during that time, but I have I have a very clear memory of what the room looked like, what the doctor looked like, you know, when I was trying to tell her, like, please don't put me on that medication. And she was convinced that that was an independent psychotic episode, that it had nothing to do with the medication. And I kept thinking, but I've never had another experience until I came to the hospital like yeah. that for, for over a decade. Like, I, I haven't had an experience like that. But again, like I said, I didn't feel confident because I was so unwell at the time. I didn't feel confident standing up for myself. And this was not my treating physician. You know, he was not, she was not the one that I had normally seen. And when he found out, he was quite upset actually and put in my file at that point that I was allergic to medication. So nobody would ever put me on it again. Good. Good. That's good. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So you were only on it for a couple of days. It wasn't a long term. Yeah, it was not a long time. No, the other medications, primary side effect that I experienced was fatigue. Most of the medications that I, it would like knock me out. It felt like taking sleeping pills, either that or feeling completely numb, like having no feeling at all. Yeah. And anybody who's ever been on a medication like that, it's worse to, you feel like you're worse that way. You go from really feeling a lot to feeling absolutely nothing. And it's a horrible experience. You know, it's kind of, I've said before, it's a horrible feeling to not feel, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, but that's what it is. I mean, our existence as human beings, a lot of our human experience is feeling right. And, and we have a tendency to label feelings good or bad and, and feelings aren't good or bad, but they're necessary part of our existence. And so when you eliminate feeling, it can make you feel like there's no point to living. Right. Well, it kind of makes you feel not human anymore. Yeah. Yeah, It's a really weird, it's a, it's a very uncomfortable. And that's, I understand why people go off their meds when they have that experience, because it's the drastic contrast between intense, you know, when you, when you're, especially bipolar, you know, when you have 
intense manic experiences. You know, everything feels euphoric and it feels, you feel everything so much. Depression sometimes can make you feel numb, mm-hmm. but at least you're, there's still feeling there. It, it's hard to explain the difference, but the medicated numbness is different than, than depression. And so that was a really disturbing experience for me. So those medications that I had that caused that in me, I would go off it right away. Like I'd call the doctor and say, I can't handle this. I had one doctor try to convince me one time to stay on it. And I said, I can't, I won't survive this if I have to stay on this. So I have, we have to go off. Yeah. Well, Um, I, I think it's almost like going blind right after you are able to see Emotions are important information about ourselves and about what's important to us and what we value. And so if all of a sudden you have no access to that part of you, I can see how you would definitely feel like there is a big part of me that's missing. I can't navigate yeah. in this world. Well, and you th- emotions are, we don't, I think a lot of times, especially if you haven't experienced mental illness, you don't, you take for granted emotions. You don't really think about them a lot. I mean, you, you think about them when you feel them, but you don't think about like, what would it be like to not experience this? You know, it, yeah. it, it's how we interact with everything. It's how our brain and our body know how to respond to things and how to interact with other people. And when it's gone, it's like, I think blindness is a very good way to describe it because it's like, all of a sudden you can't, you don't know how you're supposed to feel, or how you're supposed to act or what you're supposed to do. You don't know how to interact with other people. And so, yeah, it's, it's a horrible, <laughs> it's a really horrible way to, to exist. And so, and I think, the other thing is, is that I've learned more, you know, I, I've really tried to diligently study, you know, mental illness and that to try and understand it better, because I was trying to take more responsibility for myself and, and my healing. And my doctor at the time told me, con- you know, confessed to me after a couple of weeks after I started titrating off my meds, he said, I, if you'd brought this to me even a year ago, I wouldn't have even looked at it. Because they are in medical school, they're only taught treatment through medication. That's all, that's the only option that they're taught. And all of their continuing education is funded by the pharmaceutical companies. And so that's, that is the only viable treatment option that they are shown. But he had been treating me for eight years at that point, and he could see how much I was suffering. And he was as desperate to find a way to help me as I was. And so somebody had introduced me to this, but I was afraid I wouldn't have tried it if he hadn't agreed to help me. Because I had tried some natural things before that didn't work. And so I was very nervous about it, but he looked at all the studies that have done on it and concluded that it was a viable treatment option and it was worth a try. And I will forever be grateful to him because it saved my life, literally. Like it made it possible for my brain to heal and for me to have a healthy, balanced, productive life, you know? So, yeah. Well, and you're in a night and day different position now. Like there's just no comparison to those first 10 years. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, which is amazing. So I'd like to talk a little bit more about earlier in your life. First of all, is there any history of mental health conditions in your family? Like, is there anyone that has bipolar? Yeah, so the interesting thing is, is that I grew up hearing that my grandmother, my uh, my, my dad's mom was sick a lot, and she was in the hospital a lot, but I didn't, nobody talked about what that meant. I okay. had no idea what that meant. And so I thought, she was like sickly. Like, you know, like I thought phys- she was getting pneumonia illness. all the time. My little child yeah. mind was like, grandma's got pneumonia again and she's mm-hmm. in the hospital again, you know? And, and it wasn't until I was an adult, even after I, you know, well after my diagnosis that I oh. found out about her mental illness because um, nobody talked about it. And, yeah. It was very stigmatized back then. 
Mm-hmm. Well, and hers was combined with, I, I'm still making discoveries. It was only about a year ago that I found out that she had um, substance abuse problem. Oh. <laughs> like there were a lot of things that nobody talked about, you know, and it, interestingly, she, I do remember her talking about her therapist a lot growing up. And it actually was part of the reason why I refused to go to therapy for a while, because she would say, my therapist said this and my therapist said that. And I have a very <laughs> independent mind. And I'm like, I am never seeing a therapist. Like, I don't want somebody to tell me what to think. You know, So when I was diagnosed initially. I was willing to take whatever medication they gave me, but I absolutely refused to go to therapy. I needed therapy. And I, now I understand what an important tool it is. You know, when you have a mental illness, your brain, you go through periods of time where your brain is not functioning in a healthy way. You're having irrational thoughts and that, and you develop unhealthy thought and behavior patterns unhealthy coping mechanisms, unhealthy boundaries, you know, all of these unhealthy things that are actually going to continue to trigger mood cycles, even if you get the right medication or the right, Mm -hmm. you know, micronutrient treatment. And so I realized what an essential tool it is, if you want to live well with your mental health, you know, you have to heal, you have to heal your brain, unhealed trauma, you know, I did grow up hearing that a lot. And there was alcoholism in the family too, which makes me suspicious that there was probably and it's further back, you know, so it's like, great grandparents and, or great uncle and great grandfather. And so I think that there was probably other mental health issues that were going on that just nobody talked about. And the problem right. that that created was that I think that I actually had symptoms in high school. I look back and I mm-hmm. can see everybody just thought I was a very emotional, irrational kid, mm-hmm. which is easy to believe of a teenage girl. <laughs> right. Yeah. I look back on it and I can see the cycles. Like I can oh. see the, the patterns of cycling in me. And then when I was a freshman in high school and I was suicidal in junior high, but I never told anybody I, you know, I had, I had an actual experience one day when I wanted to take my life because I didn't want to live anymore, but I just didn't tell anybody about it. And then in high school was when I started, I became a competitive swimmer. And I talked to my doctors years after that saying what, I don't understand what happened between junior high and high school. And he, my doctor theorized that I kept myself in a hypomanic state, that the competition was helping me physically and emotionally, you know, because it was, mm-hmm. you know, I was, I was the endorphins, the endorphins and, and that, but it was also producing a sustained hypomanic state. Okay. And, and I connect. And once he said that I started thinking back, you know, I thought, well, that's true. So when I was off season, I struggled more. And when I was on season, and so I got to a point, I just kind of naturally gravitated towards the tools that I needed to live well. But then I stopped, you know, when I was 20 was when I stopped swimming. Oh, and, and that's I, about the time you started struggling. Well, and then I ended up in an abusive marriage <laughs> oh. for a year. And I yeah. think that that actually triggered the full disorder. Okay. It's, it's very common, actually, for people who um, it's not everybody doesn't experience this, but it's not uncommon for people who experience, you know, the onset of like bipolar disorder or mm-hmm. severe um, chronic depression and that kind of thing to have some kind of triggering event. And I think that that was my triggering event. So, okay. Yeah. So that's what really kind of started you into the cycles. Yeah. Um, as they've studied bipolar, they found more and more signs of it in younger children as well. Yeah. As you've looked back or talked to your parents, do you feel like there were any signs? Yeah. When I was about five years old, my mom has a journal entry um, talking about why she doesn't understand why, you know, her daughter, because I'm her, I was her oldest daughter and she was a very young mother. She was 19 when she got married and 20 when she had me. Um, And she has a journal entry talking about how serious I was and how bad I felt about myself. And she didn't understand Mm -hmm. why, like I experienced really intense emotions. But the thing is, it's hard looking backwards is it's also feels normal to you. Like that's one of the things that's hard about 
trying to identify like what's unhealthy and what's healthy, because if you've lived with it for a long time, it feels normal. So you don't know to say like, oh, I'm experiencing this symptom because well, you don't know that you it's were, a symptom. <laughs> well, and if you were the oldest child, she's yeah. not going to have a reference to any of her other yep. children to say like, what's well, maybe normal this, or what's not. Yeah, what's or, not. Yeah. And, and to have that comparison. So let me ask you this question. Um, does your mom ever talk about like how you slept as a baby? Because I've heard that can be a sign that you need less sleep. I don't know. I, I know her age. I don't recall her talking okay. about that. No. Okay. One of the things that's been interesting, I've been studying a lot more um, like psychiatry and the evolution of psychiatry and that. And, and I think part of the challenges is that they've developed a diagnosis solely based on symptoms. Yes. And because there's a desire to treat it, which it makes sense that they've done this because, you know, you want something that's, you can say, this is the problem and here's the treatment for it. Um, and for years, I've heard it fairly soon after my diagnosis, I had a doctor say, this is like diabetes. And, and I latched onto that because I understand diabetes. That makes sense to my mind. And, and so I believed that the treatment was like taking insulin. But the problem is, is that there was a disconnect there though, because when I was in high school biology, they talk about the least effective method for science is guess and check, right? That's the thing where you just keep trying things and you're going to yeah. figure it out at some point. Yes. And, and I told my uncle one day, I said, I feel like they're playing guess and check with my brain. Like, yeah. that's what it feels like with this. Well, they are. Thing. They can't actually measure your neurotransmitters yeah. and see what's well, actually. There's a lot of the theories that they developed that have been completely debunked, but they haven't got anything else to go on now. And so because the micronutrient treatments work so well, I started reading more about the research on that. There's a book called The Better Brain that is these two doctors that are doing a lot of research on the effect that deficiencies in micronutrients have on our brain function. Very and so that. they've been doing a lot of studies on that and starting to see correlations between people that are deficient in certain nutrients and, you know, that are experiencing depression, anxiety, ADHD, bipolar disorder. I'm like, well, that makes sense because the micronutrients started healing my brain, you know, mm -hmm. and it started helping my brain to function in a healthier way. But the challenge is, is that we want to look at it from just one angle. We want to find the biological problem, but you can't just treat the biological issue. You have to recognize that our brains are complex and like I said, you develop really unhealthy thought and behavior patterns. If somebody experiences severe trauma when they're young, it can change the way that their brain functions. And, you know, you have to heal the trauma. You have to kind of rewire the brain. There's a lot of different aspects to this. You can't treat it with just one thing. And the challenge with psychiatric medications is I'm not an anti-medication, but the problem is, is that they don't do studies on long-term impact of these meds. You know, these meds were not designed specifically to be taken long-term and there's right serious consequences to taking them. It, it rewires your brain. It, it creates chemical imbalances in your brain when you take medications long-term. And so, right. so I've been focused more on, you know, how do you get to the, the root of the problem? You know, we need to, I know this is hard. It's a hard thing. It's not an easy thing. It's everybody wants a magic bullet. You want to be able to just take something and be better and move on with your life. But if you want to heal, if you want to live well, you have to figure out what's causing the problem in the first place. And that's why I re recognize why the multifaceted approach to it was what helped my brain to find me heal. Yeah. You know, getting my brain, the micronutrients that it needed to start to function in a healthy way, doing therapy very proactively. You know, I, I used to do therapy only when I was in crisis. And then when the crisis was over, I'd stop. And in part was because I just didn't understand how to use therapy. One of the things that I thought is I, I feel like they should give you like an orientation when you start therapy and say, okay, this is what therapy is going to do. 
And this is that these are the things that you need to do in order to get the most out of therapy, because it took me a long time to figure those things out for myself. Uh-huh. And, and so helping somebody, cause I, I didn't know what therapy was. I didn't really understand what I was doing. And I got a couple of really bad therapists at the beginning that were, you know, I would go in and talk for the whole time. And then she'd say, all right, see you next week. And I'd be like, what's the point of that? I can do that for free with a friend. Like, what am I paying you for? And after about six months, I was done. Like, I'm like, this is dumb. This is not helping. Yeah. Uh, Why am I wasting my time and money and everything? And it's so it's, you know, I feel like it's really important to understand how to use therapy effectively so that you're being proactive and working towards healing, you know, and then And then mindfulness meditation, like I think everybody needs to learn how to do that. I don't think it's exclusively people that are struggling with mental health. You know, the research says the same thing. Research, the benefits of it just are are endless, like less and less and less. Yeah. Yeah. And it it helped me become friends with my mind again. That's one of the things that's really hard with mental illness is you don't, you're not friends with your mind. Your mind is the enemy. And so you're actively working against yourself. I developed a habit of daydreaming because I, I did not like being in my own head. It was such an uncomfortable place to be. And I felt like a bad person because I had really bad, negative, intrusive thoughts. And I thought good people don't think those things. And so I would intentionally make myself go out of my own head. And I developed a habit of daydreaming, which caused anxiety, <laughs> you know? And so I was like developing all these other problems because of my inability to cope with what was going on. And so when I finally learned how to practice mindfulness meditation, it was a major game changer for me because it helped me not only become aware that I am not my thoughts Mm. and learn how to separate myself from my thoughts, but it also helped me become more aware so that I could be more effective with my therapist because I became aware of the thoughts that were triggering emotions in me and the experiences I was having. I started recognizing trauma responses Mm. as a trauma response. You know, I could recognize what was causing my body to tense up and I'm like, oh, that that happened. And this is what happened in my body. And I couldn't see those things before because it happened so fast. It was such an automatic response that I didn't have any idea why I couldn't breathe all of a sudden or I was getting dizzy or I felt like I was going to throw up, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, like I said, each of these tools is necessary. There's so many different aspects and facets to the mental illness that that you have to address each one and and then understand how they work together so that you can heal. Yeah. It sounds like you found a really good combination between the micronutrient treatments and the mindfulness and therapy. And you'd mentioned exercise earlier and really kind of put together this complete package to really know and understand yourself and to know what to do. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why I decided to share what I learned because it made sense to me. Like it all kind of laid out. I thought, oh, well, okay, this is why you need this. And this is why you need this. And this is why you need this. And these are how these things work together. It took me a long time to figure out how to use exercise appropriately (laughs) because I was coming from an athlete's mindset. And so I would sign up for events and train for things and trigger hypomania in myself. And, and then I would crash when the event was over and I could see the cycle happening. I'm like, what is going on? I don't understand. (laughs) Like, why do I get so depressed after I have these events? Like I love to exercise and I love to compete. It took a few years for me to recognize what I was doing to myself. I was triggering a mood cycle in myself and it wasn't like the intense big cycles that I used to have before. So it took me a while to recognize the pattern. But once I recognized the pattern, I thought, okay, I don't know what to do with that because I know I need exercise. My husband was actually the one that recognized the value of exercise for helping me stay stable. But I thought, I don't know how to do this otherwise. And so it took me some time to kind of figure out 
how to use exercise in a way that didn't trigger hypomania um, that was sustainable. And so, you know, once I figured that out, I thought, okay, so I, the focus of the exercise needs to not be weight loss. I'm not trying to lose weight. I'm not trying to compete. I just want to be mentally well. And so I, and yoga was a big part of that too. So learn how to use yoga and I run, um, you can walk, but I don't, it became very apparent that it was necessary to not be tied to a gym. Um, when COVID shut everything down, because mm. that was like, I was going to the gym all the time. And then when it shut down, I was like, now what do I do? <laughs> yeah. It was like all of the resources got cut off at the same time. And, mm. and then all of the stress levels went up and it was like, I thought, I don't know how to handle all that's happening right now. Okay. So it's just kind of self-analysis, like kind of analyzing the tools and thinking, okay, this isn't working quite right, but I know this is an important tool. So how do I, how do I tweak it? How do I make it work? And and so just over time, I developed a self-care routine. And the other thing that I developed for myself was I call it the mood cycle survival guide. Because one of the things that I struggled with for years is feeling like a victim to my mood cycles. And while you're trying to heal, you still experience mood cycles. They may not be as intense. They, you still have them. And, and every time I would have one, my site, and I call them mood cycles, people call them mood swings. For me, it was like a cycle because it followed the same pattern. Every time I would, I would get hypomanic for some reason, something would trigger hypomania. One thing that was a trigger for me was moving. Anytime I would move, it would trigger hypomania. And once you get on the roller coaster, you don't get to jump off in the middle. And so you have to ride it all the way through. And so I thought, okay, I'm experiencing these and I know that it's going to happen. I don't know you know, when it's going to happen, but I, I know that what the pattern is. And so how do I manage it? Like, how do I be proactive at managing so I don't feel like a victim and it doesn't hurt my family? And, and so I developed this plan where the first part of the plan is identifying who your team is. Like, who are the people that you can ask for help? What are the healthy boundaries around that help? That was one thing that was key because if you're constantly in a state of crisis or emergency and you're treating everybody else like I need your help, you have to help me with this. It wears out relationships. It can damage relationships, sometimes beyond repair. Mm-hmm. And you feel justified in it because you feel like, well, it's happening to me and I don't have any control over it. But the reality is, is you do know that this is going to happen. Once you've experienced it a few times, you know, it's going to happen. And so identifying who can help and even with your therapist or your doctor, like what are the boundaries around that relationship? What are their, what's their role, you know, and, and establishing those things, the same thing with your partner, if you're married establishing what is your role in this? What are you not responsible for? My husband is not responsible for making me happy. He is not responsible for fixing things when I'm in a mood cycle, mm-hmm. but he does need to know like, what can I do? Because it's a helpless experience on, on the partner's side to watch your spouse going through these things and feel like they don't know what to do. They don't know how to help and they don't know how to handle it. You know. And then the second part of it is creating, I call it the early warning system, like identifying what are the triggers you can start identifying triggers using a mood tracking app. And then what are the symptoms? That was really important because I used to question constantly, am I experiencing mania right now? Or am I just feeling good? You know, and I think I, a lot of times I think I almost triggered my own mania by, by worrying, worrying about it so much. if you're yeah. going to have like a this self-fulfilling <laughs> prophecy. And so once I realized yeah. like, okay, what are the symptoms that actually identify mania? For me, it's racing thoughts and sleeplessness. Like I cannot sleep at night. Mm. And it's important to recognize it too, because I spend money like compulsively when I'm manic. And so recognizing like I'm starting to get manic, I need help right now. And so, you know, my husband will become responsible for the credit cards. Like I hand those things over to him. Don't give me access to the money. And then depression, you know, for me, depression is I am exhausted constantly. I am so tired all the time. 
And it feels like my brain is slogging through mud. Like I, I have a really hard time thinking clearly. Um, and so identifying like these are indications you are depressed right now. This is depression. You are manic right now. That's a really important thing so that you can identify like I'm starting to go into an irrational state of mind right now. And so then you can in the, the third part is identifying your baseline priorities, because a lot of times during those states, things that mattered most would get completely neglected. You know, I, when I was manic, I would get going on big projects and stuff and I would forget to eat, which meant my children didn't get fed because I would be so hyper-focused on the project that those things that mattered most weren't getting done. When I was depressed, it felt like I was climbing a hill in a mudslide and I kept trying to do everything because I felt like I was responsible for everyone. And the things that mattered most, again, like taking care of my children, a lot of times got forgotten about because I was exhausting my limited emotional resources trying to do everything. And so identifying what the baseline priorities are, what are the things that really matter? And those things get my attention. If I don't get anything else done, that's okay. And then the last part of it is how do we reboot? How do we get back to a healthy state of mind? What is the plan for getting back into a healthy state of mind? And having that identified ahead of time is a game changer because then you're not being a victim to it. You're not just waiting around to feel better. You're taking proactive action towards healing and towards getting back to a healthy balanced state of mind. So, so that was really of, helpful. Yeah. So with that last piece, that's kind of like, once you recognize I got on that roller coaster, now that I'm on the roller coaster, what am I going to do so that I can kind of get off as soon as possible or to, yeah. to get off with the least amount of negative effects yeah. kind of in my life? Yep. Yeah. It gives you a plan because it's, and it puts you in a proactive position rather than a reactive position. You know, it, before I was reacting to what was happening, I felt like it was happening to me and I didn't have any control. And I would get really belligerent during those times. Mm-hmm. I would feel really frustrated and angry mm-hmm. and feel like, well, I have to suffer. Everybody else has to suffer. You know, that was kind yeah. of, but then when I saw people suffering, people that I loved, I didn't it's want a, them suffering yeah, it's and I didn't know what to do. Right. You know? Yeah. yeah. I have a question for you. Sure. Have you written a book? <laughs> No, No, I'm trying to keep up with my blog. (laughs) Well, so in a way, so in a way you are, I mean, you're writing, so you do have the blog. So, okay. Um, Yes, I, I started. So the way, when I started my blog, I didn't really know what I was doing. And I decided at the beginning, I was going to write to my younger self. I was going to write to myself when I was a young mother. And the reason I focus on moms with bipolar disorder is because I feel like there's some unique challenges that mothers have when they're, when they're mentally unwell. Um, that I could speak to because I knew what that felt like. And, you know, the things that I teach, everybody can use, but but that's why I focus on moms. And it was a healing experience for me to write to my younger self because it helped me to have compassion for what I'd been through rather than yeah. judgment, you know? Mm-hmm. And then I, I set up a Facebook group for moms and potential moms with bipolar disorder because mm-hmm. I joined some online Facebook groups that were supposed to be for supporting people with bipolar, but they were depressing to be in because Mm -hmm. the focus was people talking about, you know, side effects from their meds and, you know, all of their hypersexuality and all of the really bad, you know, things that they were going through. It almost felt like we were just all there wallowing in the mud together. When I tried to offer solutions, I got kicked out of two of the groups. And so I thought, I, I don't like this. Like this makes me feel helpless. I feel like I'm watching somebody drown and I've got a, a, life ring here and I'm not allowed to throw it, you know? And so that's why I started my group because I thought I want a place where we offer solutions, where we help each other and engage in providing support rather than just 
commiserating on our misery. So it's just kind of evolved over time. You know, I developed that. I finally like actually wrote down my, that mood cycle survival guide and provided it for free. So on my website, people get that for free and learn how to use that in their own path to wellness. And then, um, and then ultimately I've come up with a way to teach people what I do. I call it the upsiders tribe to teach people the tools that I use and how to use them, you know, and how to be proactive in your own healing. Yeah. So yeah. That's, a, that's, I just think that's so great. Well, so <laughs> I find it interesting what you're saying about those Facebook groups because I don't know, I guess everybody's just kind of on their own journey. Yeah. I feel like people sometimes just get stuck and uh, it just sounds like sometimes they just want to be stuck. Yeah. But well, it, and I think part of the, one of the challenges with social media. You know, there's a lot of benefits to social media because I feel like we're hearing other people more. Mm -hmm. But one of the challenges that I found is that there's a tendency to try and normalize symptoms because we don't feel like there's any other way to live. And so we want, you know, I've seen a lot of people wanting people to have compassion for them. But I thought, okay, don't normalize symptoms. You wouldn't normalize the symptoms of somebody who, you know, like if somebody has diabetes and they're passing out because their blood sugar is low, we don't normalize that because we don't want to feel bad about it. We identify it as a symptom that the body is in distress. Yeah. And that's what the symptoms of bipolar are, you know, are symptoms that are manifestations of the mind in distress, the mind is in distress. Mm-hmm. And so we need to figure out how to help it, you know, find what's causing that distress and treat it so that you can alleviate the symptoms don't normalize the symptoms, right? You know, so that's one of the things that I, I talk more about bipolar symptoms than I talk about bipolar diagnosis, because I feel like that's what the diagnosis is, is a list of symptoms that are manifesting Mm -hmm. and we need to address the underlying root cause. It's important to figure out what is causing those symptoms so that you can alleviate them rather than just try to normalize it or, you know, live with it, suffer with it, you know? So, yeah. So then do you think, do you think that maybe they're kind of in this space where if they come up with solutions, then it makes it not okay to have the symptoms and they're, they're trying to, be okay that they're having the symptoms do you think that's kind of where it's at I think I think that when I was first diagnosed the first 10 years Mm -hmm. I was I was led to believe by my doctors that this was my life that my life was never going to be any different and I don't look at the doctors with judgment I believe that the doctors are doing the best that they can with the information they have you know Mm -hmm. I, I feel like you know like my doctor he was treating me the way that he'd been taught and the way that he knew how to help me but it wasn't working it wasn't helping. And we look to them as the experts because we don't know any better. Like our, our mind is unwell. We, we need help. So we go to a doctor to get help. But once I started recognizing it is possible to heal, you don't have to lift like this for the rest of your life. That's when I thought, oh, I need to tell people that. Like, yeah, need, I need to share people, you know, share with people that you don't have to suffer for the rest of your life. I think mm-hmm. that we have this belief that the best you can expect out of a life with bipolar disorder is learning how to suffer well with it. And, and I think that's what we're seeing online is people, you know, trying that's to what they've been them. told. And yeah. so that's what, well, and, that's, is, and you that's believe how it. they're going to live. Yeah. yeah. And you believe it. And so that's yeah. why I feel like it's really important. That's I actually started a podcast. It's, it's an Instagram live that I started repurposing that the audio as a podcast called the upside of bipolar. Cause I thought we need to change the conversation around bipolar. Yeah. We need to help people recognize you can live well with this. You know, there are other people out there that are living well on medication. And there are other people out there, you know, that, but, but let's talk about that. Let's focus on that. Let's make that the conversation rather than, Mm -hmm. 
And I understand what you're saying. And I think that there are times I've had some people get really offended, I guess is the right word to say by some of the things that I've shared, because it, I I feel like they think that it invalidates their experience and that's not what I'm trying to do. Right. Right. Or, or that you're trying to say, if they're suffering, they're doing something wrong. I think because I I didn't know any better. I was exactly where they were for, you know, 12 years. And that's why I'm trying to share what I'm sharing because, because I want them to know I know that this feels like this is the best you can expect, but it's, it shouldn't be, you know, you can live a different life. It's not an easy thing. I have to say that's one thing I, for a while, I was doing this thing every Wednesday called choose your heart. Um, Mm, And the lady that's helping me market, she's like, okay, you got to focus on a more positive message. (laughs) But I was like, because that's what I thought, you know, yes, it's hard. Like, this is not an easy thing to do. Getting back up and starting over again, every time I had a mood cycle was not an easy thing to do. Mm-hmm. You know, every time I experienced a mood cycle when I was on my path to wellness, it felt like failure to me because I used to think mm-hmm. of it as like climbing a hill. And then when I would fall all the way back down to the bottom, if I experienced a mood cycle mm-hmm. and I, and I finally started recognizing that wellness with bipolar actually looks more like the, the addiction recovery cycle, mm-hmm. you know, that you're, you're trying to focus on getting back to maintenance mode. And, and just stay out of the pre-contemplation and contemplation places where you don't acknowledge that you have, you know, a mental health issue and that you're not going to work on it, you know, focus on, I'm, yes, I'm, you know, I have experienced a relapse, but that doesn't mean failure. It just means I need to work to get back to maintenance and that's okay. Um, but it's hard. You know, there were times when I would be running consistently and then I would, you know, something would trigger a depressive episode and I would feel like I'd failed and I wasn't able to run. And so I'd have to start over again with my couch to 5k. And I was like, Oh, I don't want to do that again. You know, like, it's just like, I can't do this anymore. But I, then I think, no, I I felt good there. And I know that I can get back there. So I'm going to do this again. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, you know, I, I realized you can, your life is already hard. Like if you just don't do anything, your life will be hard for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. But if you're willing to choose the hard that requires the work, you know, working each day, going with your, to your therapist, doing trauma healing, you know, learning how to identify unhealthy things in your mind and healing them little by little, you can get more and more well and suffer less and less. And so, yes, it's hard, but it leads to healing and it leads to things being much easier in your life. And so which heart are you going to choose? You know, do you want to choose the heart that keeps you unhealthy and continues to be hard for the rest of your life or choose the heart that leads to healing? Well, and I think that that's a really a great philosophy in general for everyone. I don't think you have to have bipolar. I think we live in a society now where everything is instant, right? Like you (laughs) go through a drive-through, you put the food in the microwave. Like we don't have to work hard for a lot of things that a hundred years ago, it was (laughs) right. Like to make a meal, you were going to be putting significant effort and time into creating that meal. And now we can literally have a meal within minutes and it doesn't take a long time. And so I think that there's this kind of collective notion that's forming that if things don't happen right away, if, and if they don't come easily, that something's wrong. Yeah. Right. Rather than recognizing that, The hardness of it is what gives us that new knowledge, that new experience and that new strength and those new skills, right? It's because it's hard that we're better. And I see a lot of people struggling because they just think this is hard. So something's wrong. Well, (laughs) I like what you say about choose your hard because there's different kinds of hard. 
Yeah. There's the hard that's like the suffering and you know whatever, but then there's the hard that's the struggle but the struggle because you're getting better. Like Julia Or you're saying. creating something, yeah. right? Like yeah. to create something yeah. good. Yep. That it, it is hard to create something. It, it is hard, but you get something from it. You do. You don't get anything from it when you're just wallowing in your sorrows, you know, like that doesn't help you. And I think it's okay sometimes for us to to be in that place for a little bit, you know, you kind of get it out of your system. It's very human. Yeah, Yeah, it is. It is. You get it out of your system or whatever. And then you're like, okay, no, I'm going to I'm going to climb up this, you know, cliff or out of the well or whatever, you know, metaphoric area you're in. And yeah, that's the hard that helps you, right? Yeah, and it's and it and it took time to kind of gradually figure out like how. One of the things that I did was I identified like emotional resources in my mind. There were you know sometimes I had more emotional resources than others, and I think you know when you're struggling, especially with depression, depression is exhausting. You're tired for a reason. Like your brain is, it needs to sleep. Mm-hmm. And so I learned, you know, when I'm like that, it's better for me to go on a walk than a run because it takes a lot of emotional resources to make myself go run when I feel like that. But if I will just at least go outside and take a walk, I will start to feel a little bit better. And so identifying like how much do I have to give right now and allowing myself the space to like not be okay today. I'm, I'm not okay today. I'm not having a good day. And that's part of the reason why I developed that baseline priorities because when you are really struggling with low emotional resource, it's important to give yourself space, you know, don't overtax yourself by trying to do unnecessary things, mm-hmm. focus on the things that matter most. And then just give your spit, you know, if you, if it's better for you that day to just go watch a movie, go watch a movie, but then, you know, make sure that you're doing the minimum self-care that is actually going to help you to get back into a better mental space. Mm-hmm. That's one thing that I always, you know, what the best thing that you can do when you're in a bad space is make yourself go outside and at least just sit out there, you know, and if you can walk up the street, but that has been like, it's like a magic bullet in some ways. <laughs> like, it's amazing to me how much of an impact just walking outside, breathing fresh air, being in the sunlight. You don't have to take a shower. Don't don't take a shower, put your hair in a hat, you know, and just walk outside, be outside for a few minutes. But making choices, I think a lot of times we feel like we don't have choice. I think mental illness can feel like you're robbed of your ability to choose for yourself. And it's not true. Mm-hmm. And so don't believe that lie. Give yourself little things that are easy to accomplish that you can do. And and then the other thing that I I started doing was giving gratitude prayers at the end of the day mm-hmm. and thinking, saying thank you that I was able to do every little thing. Thank, I'm so thankful that I was able to brush my teeth today. I'm so thankful that I was able to get my daughter to school. Doesn't matter if it was on time, she went to school. Mm-hmm. You know, like <laughs> being grateful so that I focus on what I was able to accomplish rather than going to bed, letting my mind worry about all the things I didn't get done that day. And just making little choices that move you towards healing and move you towards wellness, rather than letting yourself get swept up by the emotion of a negative experience that helps you choose the path towards you. You get to choose, you get to make a choice. And that is really empowering. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I know that's I a love big that. deal for so, me. So many choices, so many good tools, I feel like that you're really sharing yeah. that would be good for everybody. <laughs> Everybody, I think, could really benefit from them. That's the big thing for me is being able to make my own choices. Like, that's huge. Yeah. And it's hard when your mind isn't well, because like you said, like just making the choice to brush your teeth, you can think about that and think, 
this is so ridiculous that it's this hard for me to brush my teeth and you can beat yourself up, right? Yeah. Like, why is this so hard? Or you can just think, I'm so grateful that I get to choose, yeah. right? And I'm going to choose to take care of myself. I'm going to choose to take care of my teeth right now. And I'm grateful that I have that choice. And finding and creating kind of the neural pathways to those healthier ways yeah. of thinking, you have to kind of go down those paths over and over. And over time, it becomes more naturally the way you think. A lot of people don't realize that we do have a very negative bias. That's the way our mind is originally set up. So if we want to find joy and happiness, we have to learn to rewire our brain to think in more positive ways. Yeah, but the good thing is is that you can rewire your brain. You can rewire your brain. You have that control. So Mm -hmm. well, and I think one of the things that's really important to recognize is that you have to choose what you're going to influence yourself with. You know, I found when I was depressed, I gravitated towards negative things. I gravitated towards things that validated the way that I was feeling. Mm. And then you compound the depression, you make yourself worse. You know, I used to watch really gritty crime shows when I was depressed. My husband was really disturbed by it. You know, one of them was uh, Law and Order Special Victims Unit. Yes. Um, And and that's a really depressing show to watch. I mean, it's a really disturbing show to watch. And Every single episode is about the worst parts of humanity. Yeah. <laughs> and I couldn't explain to him why I gravitated towards that. And it took me a while to realize like when I'm feeling bad, I have a tendency to gravitate towards that or true crime podcasts or like really bad things that then made me feel worse. So it was identifying like, let's watch The Office instead. <laughs> you know, let's, yeah. If I'm going to binge watch something, make sure that it's something that's going to make me laugh or yeah. you know, put me towards a positive mindset rather than feeding that negative experience that I'm having, you know, feeding yes. that, that depressive episode, you know, so it's and just I little think, choices. Well, and I think it's so easy in our society to be putting in stuff that isn't healthy, whether it is the media that we're watching or news. Yeah. I mean, if you just watch the news all the time, that's really depressing yeah. most of the time. But even food, when you look at our food options and our food choices and the quality of our food, right? But what we're putting into our bodies is what we are getting out of life. And it's what we're going to be experiencing. I love that. Like just thinking about what are you bringing in? What are you allowing to come in through your senses and through your choices? Everything, yeah. Makes a, can make an incredible difference for sure. Yeah. And being patient with the process is really important because you're trying to create a lifestyle change for your mind. You're trying to alter the path that your mind has taken. And it's not an easy thing to do. It takes a lot of effort, sustained effort over a long period of time. You'll have setbacks, but there is hope. And that's why I feel like it's really important to find sources of support with other people that are going on the same path. You know, that's, you know, if you think about somebody who's an alcoholic, it's essential for them to go to meetings and be surrounded by other people who understand what they're feeling, who are on the same journey, you're all supporting each other. Um, you don't judge each other for setbacks, you know, that kind of thing. It's important to make sure that you're surrounding yourself with people that are trying to do the same thing that you're trying to do and and can encourage you along that path. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I think support is really helpful. And it actually brings up something I wanted to ask more about. And that was on this journey that you've had to learning how to living life well with bipolar, it sounds to me like you've had a lot of family support 
both extended family, like your aunt and uncle and your parents and your husband. And so I just wanted to ask a little bit more about that and ways that maybe family members can support people who are struggling with mental health issues. Yeah, absolutely. I think the two things that are most important that we've learned over the years are number one, to be compassionate, but also set healthy boundaries. Healthy boundaries is really critical. I think that we have a tendency, anybody who's got a mental illness, we have a natural tendency towards unhealthy boundaries. And part of it is because, like I said, you know, I used to get really belligerent when I was in a a mood cycle and feel like this isn't fair. It's not my fault. You know, I can't do anything about it. So everybody else is just going to have to suffer. And that damages relationships severely. It, It does tremendous damage to relationships and it can feel really helpless on both sides. You know, the person who's struggling feels helpless and the person who's you know, on the other side of it. But I, my marriage almost ended in 2008. My husband was the one who had to stop me both times when I was trying to end my life. And that was more than he could handle. And he shut down emotionally for a number of years. And I had to be patient with him. You know, he took a long time before he was willing to talk about it. It was took a long time before he was willing to, you know, it took over a decade before he's willing to do therapy, you know, with me. Yeah, that would be really traumatic. And yeah, trauma really affects you yeah. in a deep way. Yeah, it was. It was it was very hard for him. It was a it was a horrible that whole year was terrible. But we've recognized how critical healthy boundaries are. It's really important to have healthy boundaries. And it can be difficult, especially for like a parent with a child who has mental illness, because you feel like you're responsible for your child. Um, I've had a, a lot of times when I've had parents call me and they want to know how to fix their child. And I, I tell them, you know, especially if it's an adult child, a minor child, it's different, but with an adult child, they have to be willing to do the work themselves. You can't fix it for them, you know, and it's really important for you to help set healthy boundaries in that relationship so that you're not enabling them. And it's, I'm not saying we're drug addicts, but there's a lot of similarities between mental illness and drug addiction. And it doesn't help somebody who's mentally ill to keep enabling that behavior because it doesn't help them. And I think it's helpful to have a therapist involved in this. That's one thing that we recognize for my husband. Also for parents, you know, if you have somebody that you're a caregiver for or you're really close to, I think that you need therapy as well so that you have help identifying how to help them in a healthy way. Because it's not helpful for me. It wasn't helpful for me to not be held somewhat accountable. You know, I, I needed to know what I had done in 2008, even though I didn't remember it because I needed to be able to apologize. And my husband just kept, he didn't want to talk about it. And he didn't want to, you know, he's like, it wasn't your fault. It's okay. But I thought, no, I hurt you. (laughs) I need to know what I did so I can say, sorry, please let me acknowledge what I did. And I think that trying to alleviate responsibility isn't really helpful. But helping facilitate a way back is helpful, you know? So for me, running my family into a tremendous amount of debt, I wanted to be part of the solution. I don't want somebody to take that away from me. It's embarrassing. It's humiliating. And so I think that that's one thing that's really, a lot of times people don't recognize is how important it is for our feelings of value and self-worth to be allowed to make amends and allowed to make things right and helped to do that in that process, you know, in a compassionate way, you know, it, it is hard. You don't want to be hard with somebody and say, oh, you you know, you were really irresponsible. I remember one time somebody asking me, well, how did you rationalize that? And I said, I wasn't rational. <laughs> like you're not, you're not thinking through these things rationally. You know, yeah. when I was compulsively spending money, I thought I was rational. I thought I was doing the right thing. I was thought I was receiving all kinds of inspiration. But when it's done and you, you look back and, in a rational state of mind and see what you've done, it's humiliating. Mm-hmm. And so it was really important for me 
to be able to be part of the solution in resolving the problem so that I could heal from that experience. If that had been completely alleviated, I would be left with all of the shame and, and guilt of having burdened somebody else with all of the things that I'd done. So those, I know those probably aren't the things that you might have expected. No, I think that's so perfect. I think it's really important because I, I think that you feel it's a very helpless feeling going through these, you know, mental illness. It's a very helpless thing for everybody because you don't know what's going on. You don't know how to fix it, you know, and a lot of times the solutions were presented aren't actually solutions. Yeah. So those are the two things that I think are most important in our experience is healthy boundaries mm-hmm. and helping the person to heal and be accountable for, being, for the things yeah. they've done in a way that helps them through the healing process and making amends in that. Oh, I love that. No, I really, I really think you're right because it can be so hard not to enable when you see someone suffering, but if they're going to get better, they have to really know and learn how to see and take ownership of what they're doing. Yeah. If those changes are going to happen. I think that's really perfect. I have another question for you. I really liked when you talked about how you kind of discovered how to make therapy effective for you. Mm-hmm. And there's so many different therapists out there. There's so many different therapeutic models and every therapist has their own personality and way of doing things. And I just thought that it might be super helpful for you to share how you use therapy so that it is effective for you. Absolutely. The first thing is recognizing that not all therapists are going to be a good match. And it doesn't mean yeah. that they're bad therapists. I have had bad therapists and there are there is such thing as bad therapists. I mean, oh, therapists sure. are just people, right? Right. But it's critical to have a therapist that you feel safe with and that you trust and that you feel like you can work with because I've shared things with my therapist that I have never told another living soul. And I needed to get, and it took a while to get to the point where I felt safe. You know, my current therapist, I've been seeing for four years now, and it took me a couple of years before I was able to get down to the point where I was ready to start sharing some of the really painful things that I had hidden and buried deep beneath the surface, you know? And so it's really important if you feel, I did have a therapist one time that I left, I stopped seeing her after one of our sessions because I went into her, I was, it was when my children were little and I was really struggling. And I felt like a bad mom. Like, I just felt like I was failing my children. And I went into her and her response to me was, some women aren't cut out to be mothers. I think you should put your children in daycare and go back to work. And I remember when she told me that, I thought, no, like, God did not set me up to fail. Like, that's not the right answer. And I felt unsafe with her all of a sudden because I thought, I don't trust you. That's not what I needed to hear. And I stopped seeing her after that. Yeah, she wasn't listening. No. And it, and that wasn't helpful advice. Like that wasn't helpful to me. And so I've learned that it's really important to make sure that you have a good fit with your therapist. The second thing is don't go to therapy just when you're in crisis, because for a number of reasons, number one, you don't ever prevent the crisis by doing that. You're just waiting until the crisis hits and then going and then stopping. Therapy is a really, it takes a, it's a very emotionally taxing thing to start. And so it, that can be preventative. It, can, it prevented me from getting started with therapists for a number of years, because the idea of starting the intake was so overwhelming to me that I didn't want to do it. So it takes a lot of emotional effort to establish yourself with a therapist. I decided this last time when I finally started seeing my therapist four years ago, I thought I am going to go until there is nothing left to talk about. And then when I got to the end of our goals, the therapy goals, I had the thought, I still have bipolar, and there's still going to be something that comes up later on. I don't think it's wise for me to stop. And so I just asked her, like, how long can I go between sessions and still remain your patient? And so we went to a four week, you know, every four weeks I would go. And that was a huge blessing because over the past two years, 
we've had things come up. And so when something came up, then I would just increase the number of visits until it was resolved. And then I would go back to the maintenance, Mm -hmm. you know, the maintenance schedule. And I recognize like, I don't know if I'll ever completely stop going to therapy. I may get to that point. I don't know, but I don't feel the need to stop. You know, I feel like it's, that is there to help me heal. I want to heal. And so I will stay in contact with my therapist. It's a good, yeah, it's one of the good tools that you're using right now to create the life that you really enjoy. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't understand trauma healing. You know, that was something that was new for me. I think the first time I did trauma healing at EMDR is, is the modality that I've used for trauma healing. And the first time I experienced it was such a unique, and I didn't understand about modalities either at the time. Like I didn't understand that there were different types of therapy. Therapists don't specialize in every modality. And so you might need to seek a different therapist if you have trauma and, they, and your current therapist doesn't do trauma healing. Yeah. Um, you know, so understanding modalities is really helpful. It's really important to make sure that you're open with your therapist. You know, don't hide things from your therapist. They only have what you give them to work with. And if you're hiding things from them, they are not going to be effective in helping you heal. And so that was something that I, not only that, but then identify what to work with. So I use a mood tracking app. I I haven't used it recently. I haven't needed it. But for years, I was using a mood tracking app. And that helped me identify triggers you know, I would get depressed and recognize this was triggered by this event, this experience, or this social interaction. And I would go to the therapist. I'm like, something happened here. What's going on? And so then we would dig down and figure out like, why are you having that experience every time you're around this person? Or why, you know, why, when this happens to you, do you have a trauma response to it? You know, and that gives us something to work with. And so working to identify, you know, identify things that you can work with with your therapist, bring them something to work with doing your homework. I decided I have a dedicated therapy journal that I take with me when I go to therapy and I write down my homework. You know, if if it's a book that I need to read or a tool that I need to practice, I keep track of that in the therapy journal and it's only for therapy. Nobody will ever see it. It's just for me, Mm -hmm. but learning how to be proactive outside of the therapy sessions, because it's not really effective if you're going to therapy, but you're not doing anything in between the sessions because you're not really going to affect change. I right. Think like can, one hour. Yeah. One hour once a week or once yeah. every other or week. Or once every four weeks. Or once yeah, every four weeks. weeks right. Yeah. It's, yeah. yeah. That's not going to actually change your day to day life unless yeah. you're bringing something from that time into your life and making it a part of your life. Yeah. It's just been a process of learning how to be proactive and learning how to aid in your own healing. I think that's probably the most important thing there is not being passive about your healing, you know, not expecting somebody else to fix you. You are there as an active participant. I feel like a therapist is more like a facilitator. You are coming in and you are the active participant in the healing and the therapist is there to help facilitate the healing. Yes. Or kind of like a a coach, right? Yeah, exactly. The coaches on the sidelines, they're not the ones scoring the points, but they can definitely help the team work together and see what they need to be doing. And the coach is extremely influential, but they're not the ones scoring the points. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yep. So those are the, those are the things that I've learned that have helped me. And it's made therapy like a huge blessing for me. Like I said, there's these different aspects to the illness and you have to treat each aspect. You have to get to the bottom of each problem. It's been fascinating to me to watch to, or to kind of look back, especially the last couple of years, the first two years of therapy, there was very obvious, like surface level things that I was working on. And then it got to a point where it was like trying to dig down and like, you know, excavate. <laughs> and that's hard because a lot of the stuff you've lived with it your whole life, you don't know that that's a problem. You don't know it's unhealthy. You don't know that that's not normal. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes you have to wait until you have a triggering event 
you then work down from there and say, oh, okay, I had a trauma response. What caused that trauma response? Yeah. You know, and learning to recognize trauma responses took a long time for me too. recognizing that when my chest got tight and I couldn't breathe and I felt like I was going to throw up, I was experiencing a trauma response. And so then, like I said, mindfulness really helped me become much more aware of what the circumstances were that preceded that experience. So then I could go to my therapist and say, okay, this is what happened. This is what happened beforehand. Can you help me figure out why I'm having that kind of a reaction to those experiences? So, yeah, I really like that. So can you tell me a little bit more about your mindfulness meditation practices and how you bring that and use that in your life? Sure. It's interesting. This is one of those things where I was introduced to it a number of times over the years. And the first few times that I was introduced to it, I thought, what is that mumbo jumbo? Like yeah. the first time my sister who's kind of a hippy dippy person in the first place is <laughs> sent me these CDs from John Kabat-Zinn, who's considered the father of Western meditation. And he has this voice that you just imagine like a hippie commune. And I, when I, I listened to the CD for like one minute and I'm like, that is not for me. And I turned it off and put it away and didn't think about it again. And then I, a few years later, I was introduced to him again by my mom. And I thought, why is mom doing this? You know? And so I tried it, but the way that he approaches it is so thorough that it was too much for me. Mm. Um, His book, the full catastrophe living, I've got it somewhere here. It's, it's, so huge. Like yeah. it's this massive book. And I, I think I've gotten like a third of the way through twice and I just gave up. I'm like, <laughs> yes, this is good information, but I don't have the time or the energy to put into this. And so I, it kind of got put off again. And I, try, I dabbled with that a few times, but his meditations are like 45 minutes. And I was having anxiety trying to meditate for 45 minutes because I was worried about my kids. I couldn't yeah. do it late enough till my kids were in bed because then I would fall asleep. But then right. when I tried to do it during the day, I was like, my mind was worried about where my kids were, or what they were doing. Am I going to have a disaster to clean up afterwards, you know? Yeah. And so I finally discovered a couple of students of John Kabat-Zinn created a really awesome program. Um, it's the book that they wrote was called Mindfulness, an Eight-Week Plan for Finding Peace in a Frantic World. And it's very simple. You know, the first few chapters are really easy reads and they help you understand why mindfulness works, kind of the history of mindfulness and what it does biologically and why it's so effective. And then there's an eight week plan and you have one easy chapter to read and explains that week what you're going to be working on and gives you prescribed meditations. And then you do that for the week. And then the next week you do another chapter and another prescribed meditation. And I had a false start a couple of times with that. You know, it was a couple of times where I tried doing it and I was starting to see the benefits. And so I had this epiphany a couple of years ago. I think if I like really do this, it's really going to help me. (laughs) And so I committed fully. Like that was the most important thing for that eight weeks was that's what mattered. And I made a sign to put on my door and told my husband, like, nobody come in when I'm doing this. Like if the door is on, don't knock on the door, you know? Mm-hmm. And and they're short meditations. They're not really long ones, but it was really life changing for me. And I'm not exaggerating when I say that. Like it really changed my whole experience. And so I do. You know, I'll start the day with a like seven minute guided meditation. You can start meditating without the guided thing, but it's helpful to me to have something to focus on. Mm-hmm. And then you learn how to do these. They call them breathing three minute breathing uh, space where you can check in with yourself during the day. If you start feeling yourself getting anxious or whatever. It's a way to help bring yourself back into the present. And one of the things that was really helpful to understand is that mindfulness is not about clearing your mind or creating some kind of Zen space in your mind. Mm -hmm. Mindfulness is about bringing yourself present. Mm -hmm. Whatever is happening, leaning into the emotions, leaning into the feelings you're having, leaning into the experience, because a lot of 
our distress is created by resisting ourselves, by resisting how we're feeling, by judging how we're feeling. For me, with the, you know, a lot of negative thoughts, not recognizing that I don't have to engage with every thought that comes in my head. And my thoughts are not me. Just because I have weird thoughts doesn't mean I'm a bad person. And so all of those things really helped me start to become friends with my mind again. It helped me learn how to live present in my body that eliminated anxiety for me almost exclusively. You know, it was, I used to use a supplement to help when I would have like physical anxiety symptoms. I rarely need to use it anymore. You know, every once in a while, like going to bed, if I've had like a stressful day, I'll do a mindfulness meditation and then take some passion flower um, just to make sure that my body can relax completely. But I generally don't have that anymore. And it's because I've learned how to be present with my mind and my body and stop if I have bad feelings, bad feelings. I don't, I don't even, I try not to even call label feelings anymore. Yeah. Feelings are just feelings. They're not bad or good. I, they might be uncomfortable, but resisting them intensifies the feeling. Leaning into them actually takes away most of their power. And yeah. you know, allowing yourself to experience feelings is really important to learn how to do. Yeah, that's awesome. Really amazing. And so true. It it makes me think like I need to I need to be doing more of that. And I like doing meditations, but I think I need to start doing it with my kids. I really need to teach them how to yeah. do the mindfulness meditation. Well, and they've got they've got really great books. I, I don't know where my book is right now, but I have a book for children that just oh. teaches them little simple five minute meditations for children because they're not really intellectually in the place where they can understand all of the science behind it, but teaching yeah. children how to focus on your breath, you know, and it's okay if your mind wanders, acknowledge that your mind has wandered, but then focus back on your breath, bring, you know, keep bringing yourself back. And, and um, that's one of the reasons why they explain that they call it practice, because people who've been doing it for decades still practice meditation, they haven't created some kind of a blank slate in their brain, they've just learned how to keep coming back to themselves, you know, if their mind keeps wandering, they just have learned how to just keep coming back to your breath, acknowledge it, come back to your breath, acknowledge it, come back to your breath. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, and you saying that reminds me, I am doing some with my kids. My younger two will listen to a meditation audio to go to sleep and I just yeah. connect it to their Echo Dot and I have a Insight Timer app and uh, they have really fun ones for kids that start with yeah. the breathing and then they do a, a story and then they'll end with more of the breathing and music. And my yeah. kids really, my younger two really love that. It's awesome to teach them young because if they learn how to do that young, then it, it, they're way ahead of the game because that's one of the biggest problems. You know, we talk about the epidemic of anxiety in our society, and a lot of it has to do with us losing control of what's happening in our minds and our bodies. Mm-hmm. It creates this feedback loop. You know, our, mm-hmm. our, our mind has something happen and our body responds. And then our mind recognizes the response in the body and has more thoughts, you know, and, and it just creates this feedback loop that becomes out of control. Yes. So if you can interrupt that feedback loop, then you can start to come back to like, I'm safe. I'm okay. Nothing bad Mm -hmm. is going to happen to me right now. Mm -hmm. But, but it's, you know, when we don't have control over that feedback loop, when we don't take responsibility for that, we start to lose control. And that's when you end up with like chronic anxiety issues and Mm -hmm. chronic depression and that, because we've, we let our minds, our minds are designed to protect us. If they sense a threat, they will do something about it. And, Mm -hmm. and sometimes it's not really a threat, but it's going to go back through every file in your mind, you know, every time, every experience you've ever had that relates to that. And it's going to tell you this could happen, this could happen, this could happen. And you're all of a sudden you're freaking out and your body is responding to it. And then your mind, and it's just, we don't even realize it's happening. 
And right? so learning how to practice mindfulness helps us to become more aware of what's going on and, and take more responsibility. Right. And be able to make a choice, right? On how we want to choose to respond in that moment instead of just reacting. It's very empowering. It's a very empowering thing to practice. Yeah. Yeah. That is amazing. Such good advice. I feel like I need to just like, we probably will for the podcast, just write a huge list of all the things, (laughs) all the tools. There's Um, there's so much in this. Yes. But it's so neat. I, I just appreciate so much you being able to share your experience and the journey you've been through. I feel like there's so much, you kind of paved the way for other people by having to go through these really hard things. And I love that you are so wanting to share that experience with other people so that they don't have to suffer as long or as hard or in the same ways that you had to suffer. And to really be that example of, you know, I don't have everything easy, Maybe everything's not just working quite right inside my body all the time, but I'm choosing to make a really amazing life that I love and it's working. Yeah. It gives purpose to the suffering. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. And a lot of hope that you don't always have to suffer. It's just a really big deal. Yeah. Yeah. Now that's one of the things that I put on a lot of my blog posts is there is hope and there is help. Like, Yeah. yeah. I like that. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's the, really like awesome. everything you're saying, like, I just the whole time I'm like, yep, yep, been there. Yep. I mean, like, I don't have exactly the same issue as you, but a lot of it, because you compared it to being addicted to drugs or addiction. Yeah. And I think a lot of everything, like any ailment or thing that goes wrong, they have a lot of similar aspects to them. And no. so, yeah, for me, that's the whole reason why we started doing this podcast is because it's like all the things that I realized and I received a lot of help from listening to other people who are willing to talk about what they've been through, what works for them and whatever, like tons of healing in that. And I'm like, yeah, I think I feel like there's kind of like a movement sort of without people realizing it that yeah. like there's healing and talking to each other and sharing our experiences and when you hide that's where the suffering is yeah right when you're hiding and you're not comfortable talking about it or you have to there's shame in it or whatever that's where you're in that suffering zone you know but when you when you can find the the courage to talk about it like that's that's just part of the healing process and i think it's incredible that you talk about this i mean like I know when we do this, like we're going to be talking to a bunch of different people and people will be in different stages of their healing or you are super, you're like up there, like you've been prepared, like you've done your own work. Like I just, I think it's really great. And I'm so thankful that you were, or are willing to talk about it. Part of the healing experience has been learning how to talk about it without feeling, judging myself. That, Mm -hmm. that took a long time. Yeah. yeah. My husband was very uncomfortable when I started talking to people yeah. about it. Yeah. You know, it was he's a very private person and mm-hmm. he he was really bothered. He was worried that people were going to judge me. Yeah. And I remember telling him, I said part of the problem with getting me diagnosed in the first place was the shame that was mm-hmm. associated with it. And then when I got diagnosed, I thought well, people don't talk about this, it must be shameful. You know, and that compounded my feelings of, you know, mm-hmm. worthlessness and shame and embarrassment about it. Um, But over time, when I started recognizing these are just symptoms, they're not moral defects. I'm not, there's not something wrong with me in the, in the moral sense. 
-hmm. And I shouldn't be ashamed of these things. And the same Mm -hmm. thing with like suicidal ideation. I share my experiences because I want people to understand this is not something to be ashamed of. Ask for help. You know, don't hide this. It's, you know, don't suffer by yourself. Right. And so talking about it, you know, I, and I talk about it in in very clear terms. I'm not trying to normalize the experience that I had, but I am trying to, to help people recognize these are symptoms that can be addressed. You can heal the, the mm-hmm. things that are causing the symptoms. Let's talk about the symptoms and then let's mm-hmm. talk about how you can heal. How yep. can you address the problems that are causing the symptoms so you can find healing? Yeah. Well, one thing for me too, I think that's important to point out is that, you know, you're, I think your husband has a valid fear that people have of, well, people are going to judge you. You know what? People are going to judge you. Yeah. That's what people do. It's a human thing. And that's not your problem. That's their right. problem. You know, yeah. you're out there to help people. And there are people who, even some of the people who might judge you, they need your expertise and they need to hear your experiences. Cause I've yeah, been in that I... place of judgment before and it's yeah. like, okay, you know what? You're full of crap. <laughs> then, But then I find out later, oh, you know what? They're not like <laughs> their information is actually what I need, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Well, and I, and I want to say that, you know, it, it was a long time ago that we first met, but I remember you bearing your testimony at church and, and sharing about some of your journey at that time, which I'm guessing it was the early 2010s, probably yeah. around that time. So you've been sharing your experiences for a long time, mm-hmm. but I remember that my parents were staying with us and visiting at that time. And I remember it impacted my mom. I remember her commenting afterwards about how impactful that testimony was to her and how your journey was really inspiring. So I think you've been inspiring people because you've been willing to talk about this for probably a lot longer than you even realized. Well, I I started talking about it much more openly at church because I really struggled. It's very difficult to feel the spirit, to feel close to God when you're depressed. And it makes you feel like there's something wrong with you. I associated it with losing the spirit with sin. I I thought I was, I was a sinful person because I couldn't feel those things. And it's also really hard to keep doing the things that are right. If you're not getting any kind of feedback from it, you know, a lot of times Mm -hmm. we do things that are right because we feel good afterwards. Right. And when you can't feel anything, it's really hard to keep doing those things. And, and I think that it's really important to acknowledge that so that people don't feel that's one of the reasons why I talk about it so openly at church. Anytime that there's any kind of, sometimes we have lessons in in the women's classes about mental health or, you know, those kinds of things. And I'm very vocal in those experiences about it because I had long periods of time when it was very hard to keep going to church because I couldn't feel anything. And that is worse. Like that was worse because it made me feel bad. It made me feel like there was something wrong with me. Yeah, And so talking about it openly is really important so that people feel seen. They feel like they're, that they're seen and they're acknowledged. And then also helping people understand how to help them when they're in those situations. I had friends that, you know, weren't trying to fix me. They were just present for me. I had a friend that would see when she could tell when I was feeling depressed and she would offer to take my children to the park. That was like the biggest gift for me because then I could sleep without feeling guilty. I could take care of myself without worrying about my children for those couple hours, you know? And so just learning how to be compassionate towards others and and seeing them, you know, meeting them where they are and showing compassion and kindness towards them. You know, even with all the things that I've learned, I still treat people with tremendous compassion. I, I don't ever... You know, I had somebody that got really offended by something that I said the other day about being able to heal. You can't cure bipolar, but you can heal it. 
there's a difference. And I, and I said that and she was very upset and, you know, and said some really, some really intense things in that space. And, and I just acknowledged her and told her, I understand where she's coming from. And I appreciated her comments that she wasn't ready to hear what I was saying. And that's okay. That I understand where she is. I understand what it feels like to feel that despair. And and it's hard to feel hope when you're in that place. Sometimes hope almost feels offensive. <laughs> you know, it almost put, it's almost like an affront to what you're suffering. And That's why so, you got kicked out of those Facebook groups. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I think when you are in that place of suffering, it just makes you mad when you yeah. see people who yes. aren't there anymore. It's like, <laughs> that's not fair. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I've been told, I had one lady who was absolutely convinced that I just didn't have bipolar. <laughs> like, you know, she's like, well, you're a unicorn. That's not normal. And I, I thought it could be <laughs> like, it shouldn't, I shouldn't be abnormal. Like I should not be the exception to the rule. The, the mm. things that I'm doing can work for anybody. It's not like this is something unusual. That's one of the reasons why I started sharing it because I thought, why didn't, why didn't they give me a treatment plan? Like, I know if the psychiatrist could like hand you that book, right? Yeah. Like do this with your meds, right? Yes. Then yes. a lot more people would be in a, a better place. Yeah, we shouldn't be left. There's a massive disconnect in our mental health system. I feel like I think that there are places that are now trying to work on that and trying to create more connection between the services and the resources for people. But I would see my doctor once every three months for 15 minutes for a med check. And that was it, you know, and then I would see my therapist and they didn't talk to each other. My therapist got all kinds of information out of me, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, but the therapist can't provide prescribe medication, you know, and mm-hmm. medication wasn't working for me anyway. Like, you know, there was just, and then I was left to myself, to my own devices to figure out all the self-help or the self-care mm-hmm. stuff, you know, that, yeah, that shouldn't be like, you shouldn't have to figure all that stuff out. People that struggle with mental health issues generally struggle with self, uh, self-discipline and yeah. that kind of mm-hmm. stuff takes a lot of self-discipline. Mm-hmm. So you're asking the person who can't do something to th- this is how you're going to get well. And you have to do this one thing that you, that you can't do, <laughs> yeah. you know? And so it felt like a massive uphill battle on a regular basis, trying to make myself do things consistently. Mm-hmm. And it, so it took a long time to develop the self-discipline necessary. It, and that's one of the reasons why I created like Facebook group and my Upsize tribe has a private Facebook group to like a space to get encouragement and feedback and that so that you're not by yourself trying to figure all these things out for yourself, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is awesome. And, <laughs> and I do think that's really important. I think that's a key component to the change process yep. is having and finding the right support to help mm-hmm. keep you on that journey because it's not a smooth journey. Mm-hmm. It's not. It's not, but it's, but if you just keep moving in that direction, like I said, it's being willing to get, I have a poster on the other side of my room that says one day at a time, one step at a time. That's kind of become my mantra for my life that just, I might not make it to the top of the mountain right now, but I can take this next step. I'm just going to keep moving towards that goal of living healthy, living well. Mm -hmm. It is not failure when I relapse into a mood cycle, you know, Mm -hmm. it's just a different place on the path for me. And I'll just work through the process and just keep moving forward. I love that. That's great. Just keep swimming. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Marie had it right. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I keep Julie around. She She's so good at making it fun. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you so much, Michelle. Yeah, for everything amazing. that you've shared. Uh, yeah, just really... Honestly, it has helped me personally, and it also 
it helps me professionally and it helps, I'm sure it's going to help lots of other people too, everything yeah. that you've been able to share. Thank you so much, Michelle. I'm. We really appreciate you and you have such valuable wisdom for everybody. Um, thank you. Yes. And listeners, thank you for showing up and tuning in and subscribing. And we will catch you next week with our next episode of Your Courageous Journey. Bye-bye.